All through the summer, Owen continued to make himself objectionable and to incur the ridicule of his fellow workmen by talking about the causes of poverty and of the ways of abolishing it. Most of the men kept two shillings or half a crown to their wages back from their wives for pocket money, which they spent on beer and tobacco. There were very few who spent a little more than this, and there was still a small number who spent so much in this way that their families, well, they had to suffer the consequences. Most of those who kept back half a crown or three shillings from their wives did so on the understanding that they were to buy their clothing out of it. Some of them had to pay a shilling a week to a tallyman or credit clothier. These were the ones who indulged in shoddy new suits at long intervals. Others bought, or got their wives to buy for them, their clothes at second-hand shops, paying off about a shilling or so a week, and not receiving the things till they were paid for. There was a very large proportion of them who didn't spend even a shilling a week for drink, and there were numerous others who, well, not being formally total abstainers, yet often went for weeks together without either entering a public house or tasting intoxicating drink in any form. And then there were others who, instead of drinking tea or coffee or cocoa with their dinners or suppers, drank beer. This did not cost more than the teetotalers drank, but, all the same, there are some persons who say that those who swell the nation's drink bill by drinking beer with their dinners or suppers are a kind of a criminal that they ought to be compelled to drink something else, that is, if they're working people. As for the idle classes, they, of course, are to be allowed to continue to make merry, drinking whisky and wine and sherry, to say nothing of having their beer in by the barrel and the dozen or forty dozen bottles. But, of course, that's a different matter, because these people make so much money out of all the labour of the working classes that they can afford to indulge in this way without depriving their children of the necessities of life. There is no more cowardly or dastardly slander than is contained in the assertion that the majority or any considerable proportion of working men neglect their families through drink. It's a condemned lie. There are some who do, but they're not even a large minority. There are few and far between, and they are regarded with contempt by their fellow workmen. It'll be said that their families had to suffer for want of even a little that most of them spent in that way. But the persons that use this argument should carry it to its logical conclusion. Tea is an unnecessary and harmful drink. It's been condemned by the medical men so often that to enumerate its evil qualities here... Well, that would be a waste of time. The same can be said of nearly all the cheap temperance drinks. They are unnecessary and harmful, and they cost money. Unlike beer, they're drunk only for pleasure. What right has anyone to say to working men that when their work is done, they shouldn't find pleasure in drinking a glass or two of beer together in a tavern or anywhere else? Let those who would presume to condemn them carry their argument to its logical conclusions and condemn pleasure of every kind. Let them persuade the working classes to lead simpler lives, to drink water instead of such unwholesome things as tea and coffee and beer and lemonade and all the other 
harmful and necessary stuff, and then they'd be able to live ever so much more cheaply. And as wages are always and everywhere regulated by the cost of living, they'd be able to work for lower pay. These people are fond of quoting the figures of the nation's drink bill, as if all this money was spent by the working classes. But if the amount of money spent in drink by the aristocracy, the clergy and the middle classes were deducted from the nation's drink bill, it would be seen that the amount spent per head by the working classes is not so alarming after all, and would probably not be much larger than the amount spent on drink by those who consume tea and coffee and all the other unwholesome and unnecessary temperance drinks. The fact that some of Rushton's men spent about two shillings a week on drink while they were in employment was not the cause of their poverty. If they'd never spent a farthing for drink, and if their wretched wages had been increased 50%, they would still have been in a condition of the most abject and miserable poverty. For nearly all the benefits and privileges of civilization, nearly everything that makes life worth living, would still be beyond their reach. It's inevitable, so long as men have to live and work under such heartbreaking and uninteresting conditions as at present, that a certain proportion of them will seek forgetfulness and momentary happiness in the tavern. And the only remedy for this evil is to remove the cause. And while that is in the process, there is something else that can be done, that is, well, instead of allowing filthy drinking dens, presided over by persons whose interest it is to encourage men to drink more bad beer than good, than is good for them or than they can afford, to have civilised institutions run by the state or the municipalities for use and not merely for profit. Decent pleasure houses, where no drunkenness or filthiness would be tolerated, where one could buy real beer or coffee or tea or any other refreshments, and where men could repair when their day's work was over and spend an hour or two in rational intercourse with their fellows or listen to music and singing. Taverns to which they could take their wives and children without fear of defilement would be great, for a place that is not fit for the presence of a woman or a child is not fit to exist at all. Owen, being a teetotaler, didn't spend any of his money on drink. He spent a lot of on what he called the cause. Every week he bought some penny or tuppenny pamphlets or some leaflets about socialism, which he lent or gave to his mates. And in this way, and by means of much talk, he succeeded in converting a few to his party. Philpot, Harlow, and a few others used to listen with interest, and some of them even paid for the pamphlets they obtained from Owen. After reading them themselves, they passed them on to others, and also occasionally got up arguments on their own account. Others were simply indifferent, or they treated the subject as a kind of a joke, ridiculing the suggestion that it was possible to abolish poverty. They repeated that there was always been the rich and the poor in the world, and there always would be, so that was an end of it. But the majority were bitterly hostile, not to Owen, but to socialism and uh, for the man himself, most of them had a certain liking, certainly 
the special kind of hands because it was known that he was not a master's man, that he declined to take charge of jobs which misery had offered to him. But to socialism they were savagely and malignantly opposed. Some of those who had shown some sympathy of socialism during the past winter, when they were starving, had now quite recovered, and they were stout defenders of the present system. Barrington was still working for the firm, and he continued to maintain his manner of reserve, seldom speaking unless addressed, but all the same, for several reasons, it began to be rumoured that he shared Owen's views. He always paid for the pamphlets that Owen gave him, and on one occasion, when Owen brought a thousand leaflets to give away, Barrington contributed a shilling towards the half-crown that Owen had paid for them. But he never took any part in the arguments, and sometimes he raged during the dinner hour at the breakfast time, but he was always silent. It was a good thing for Owen that he had his enthusiasm for the cause to occupy his mind, because socialism was to him what drink was to some of the others, the thing that enabled them to forget and to tolerate the conditions under which they were forced to exist. Some of them were so muddled with beer, and others were so besotted with admiration of their liberal and Tory masters, that they were oblivious to the misery of their own lives. And in a similar way, Owen was so much occupied in trying to rouse them from their lethargy, and so engrossed in trying to think out new arguments to convince them of the possibility of bringing about the improvements in their condition, that he had no time to dwell upon his own poverty. The money that he spent on leaflets and pamphlets to give away, well, it might have been better spent on food and clothing for himself, because most of those to whom he gave were by no means grateful. But he never thought of that. And after all, nearly everyone spends money on some hobby or other. Some people deny themselves the necessities or comforts of life just in order that they may be able to help to fatten a politician. Others deny themselves in order to enable a lazy person to live in idleness and luxury. And others spend much time and money that they really need for themselves in buying socialist literature to give it away to people who don't want to know about socialism. One Sunday morning towards the end of July... A band of about twenty-five men and women on bicycles invaded the town. Two of them, who rode a few yards in front of the others, had affixed to the handlebars of each of their machines a slender, upright standard from the top of one which fluttered a small flag of crimson silk with International Brotherhood and Peace in gold letters. The other standard was similar to size and colour, but with a different legend. One for all... And all for one. As they rode along, they gave leaflets to the people in the streets. And whenever they came to a place where there was about many people, they dismounted and they walked about, giving their leaflets to whoever would accept them. They made several long halts along the progress along the Grand Parade, where there was a considerable crowd. And then they rode over to the hills to Windley, where they reached, a little before the opening time, the pubs there. There was a little crowd waiting outside the several public houses, and a number of people passing through the streets on their way home from the church and the chapel. The strangers distributed leaflets to all those who would take them, and they went through a lot in the side streets, putting leaflets under the doors and in the letter boxes. 
when they'd exhausted their stock, they remounted and they rode back the way they came. Meanwhile, the news of their arrival had spread. As they returned through the town, they were greeted with jeers and booing. Presently, someone threw a stone. As there happened to be plenty of stones, they just several others followed the suit and began running after the retreating cyclists, throwing stones and hooting and cursing. The leaflet which had given rise to all this fury read as follows. What is socialism? At present the workers, with hand and brain, produce continually food, clothing, and all useful and beautiful things in great abundance. But they labour in vain, for they are mostly poor and often in want, and they find it hard to struggle to live. Their women and children suffer, and their old age is branded with pauperism. Socialism is a plan by which poverty will be abolished, and everyone enabled to live in plenty and comfort, with leisure and opportunity for an ampler life. And if you wish to hear more of this plan, come to the field at the crossroads at the hill at Windley on Tuesday evening, next, at 8pm, and look out for the socialist van. The cyclist rode away amid showers of stones, without sustaining much damage, one would say, one had his hand cut, maybe, and another happened to look around and was struck on the forehead. But, well, these were the only casualties. On the following Tuesday evening, long before the appointed time, there was a large crowd assembled at the crossroads on the hill at Windley, waiting for the appearance of the van, and they were evidently prepared to give the socialists a warm reception. There was only one policeman in uniform, but there must have been several in plain clothes amongst the crowd. Crass, Dick Wantley, the semi-drunk, Sawkins, Bill Bates, several other frequenters of the cricketers were amongst the crowd, and they were also a sprinkling their tradespeople, including the old deer, and Mr Smallman, the grocer, and a few ladies and gentlemen, wealthy visitors. But the bulk of the crowd were working men, labourers, mechanics, and boys. As it was quite evident that the crowd meant mischief, Many of them had in their pockets filled with stones, and they were armed with sticks. Several of the socialists were in favour of going to meet the van in an endeavour to persuade them in charge from not coming, and with the object that they withdrew from the crowd, which was already regarding them with menacing looks. And they went down the road in the direction from which the van was expected to come. They had not gone very far, however, before the people, divining what they were going to do, began to follow them, and while they were hesitating as to what course to pursue, the socialist van, escorted by five or six men on bicycles, appeared round the corner at the bottom of the hill. As soon as the crowd saw it, they gave an exultant cheer, or, or rather a yell. They began running down the hill to meet it, and in a few minutes it was surrounded by a howling mob. The van was drawn by two horses. There was a door and a small platform at the back, and over this was a sign in white letters on a red ground. Socialism. The only hope of the worker. The driver pulled up, and another man on the platform at the rear attempted to address the crowd. 
but his voice was inaudible in the din of the howls and the catcalls and the hooting and the obscene curses. After about an hour of this, as the crowd began pushing against the van and trying to overturn it, the terrified horses commenced to get restive and uncontrollable, and the man on the box attempted to drive up the hill. This seemed to still further infuriate the horde of savages who surrounded the van. Numbers of them clutched the wheels and turned them to the reverse way, screaming that it must go back to where it came from, and several of them accordingly seized the horses' heads and, amid cheers, turned them round. The man on the platform was still trying to make himself heard, but without any success. The strangers who had come with the van and a little group of local socialists who had forced their way through the crowd and gathered together close to the platform in front of the would-be speaker, well, they only increased the din by their shouts of appeal to the crowd. "'Give the man a fair chance!' This little bodyguard round close to the van as he began to move slowly downhill, but they were not sufficiently numerous to protect it from the crowd, which, well, not being satisfied with the rate at which the van was proceeding, began to shout to each other to run it away, take the brake off. Several savages rushed to make with the intention of putting these suggestions into execution. Some of the defenders were hampered with their bicycles, but they resisted as well as they were able to, and they succeeded in keeping the crowd off until the foot of the hill was reached, and then someone threw the first stone, which, by a strange chance, happened to strike one of the cyclists, whose head was already bandaged. It was the same man who had been hit on the Sunday, and that stone was soon followed by others, and the man on the platform was the next to be struck. He got it right on the mouth, as he put up his handkerchief to staunch the blood. Another struck him on the forehead, just above the temple, and he dropped forward onto his face and the platform as if he'd been shot. As the speed of the vehicle increased, a regular hail of stones fell upon the roof and against the sides of the van, and they whizzed past the retreating cyclists while the crowd followed close behind, cheering and shrieking out volleys of obscene curses and howling like wolves. "'We'll give those bastards socialism!' shouted Crass, who was literally foaming in the mouth. "'We'll teach him to come here, trying to undermine our bloody morality,' howled Dick Wantley, as he hurled a lump of, a lump of granite that he'd torn up from a macadamised road at one of the cyclists. They ran on after the van until it was out of range, and then they bethought themselves of the local socialists. But they were nowhere to be seen. They had prudently withdrawn as soon as the van had got fairly underway. And the victory being complete, the upholders of the present system returned to the piece of waste ground at the top of the hill, where a gentleman in a silk hat and a frock coat up on a little hillock had made a speech. He said nothing about the distress committee or the soup kitchen, or the children who went to school without proper clothes or food. He made no reference to what was to be done next winter, when nearly everybody would be out of work. These were matters he and they were evidently not at all interested in. But he said a good deal about the glorious empire, and the flag, and the royal family. And the things he said were received with a rapturous applause. And at the conclusion of his address... The crowd sang the national anthem with great enthusiasm, 
and they dispersed congratulating themselves that they had shown to the best of their ability what Mugsborough thought of socialism. And the general opinion of the crowd was that they would hear nothing more from that socialist van. But in that they were mistaken, because the very next Sunday evening a crowd of socialists suddenly materialised at the crossroads. Some of them had come by train, others had walked from different places and some had cycled. A crowd gathered and the socialists held a meeting. Two speeches were delivered before the crowd recovered from their surprise at the temerity of these other Britishers, who apparently had not enough sense to understand that they had been finally defeated and obliterated last Tuesday evening. When the cyclist with the bandit head got up on the hillock, some of the crowd actually joined in the hand-clapping with which the socialists greeted him. In the course of his speech, he informed them that the man who had come with the van and who had been felled while attempting to speak from the platform, was now in hospital. For some time it had been probable that he would not recover, but he was now out of danger, and as soon as he was well enough, there's no doubt that he would come there again. Upon this, Crass shouted out that if ever the vanner did return, they'd finish what they began last Tuesday. He won't get off so easy next time. When he said this, Crass, not being able to see into the future, did not know what the reader will learn in due time, that the man was to return to that place, but under different circumstances. When they'd finished their speech-making, one of the strangers who was acting as chairman invited the audience to put questions. But as nobody wanted to ask any, he invited anyone who disagreed with what he'd said to get up on the hillock and state his objections, so that the audience might have an opportunity of judging for themselves which side was right. But this invitation was also neglected. Then the chairman announced that they were coming there again next Sunday, at the same time, when a comrade would speak on unemployment and poverty and causes and the remedy thereof. And then the strangers sang a song called England Arise. The first verse being, England arise, the long, long night is over. Faint in the east, behold the dawn appear. Out of your evil dream of toil and sorrow, arise, O England, for the day is here. During the progress of the meeting, several of the strangers had been going about amongst the crowd, giving away leaflets which many of the people gloomily refused to accept, and selling penny pamphlets of which they managed to dispose of about three dozen. Before declaring the meeting closed, the chairman said that the speaker, who was coming next week, resided in London. He was not a millionaire, but a workman, the same as nearly all of those who were present. They were not going to pay him anything for coming, but they intended to pay his railway fare. And therefore, next Sunday, after the meeting, there would be a collection, and anything over the amount of the fare would be used for the purchase of more leaflets, such as those as we're now giving away. He hoped that anyone who thought that any of the money went into the pockets of those who held the meeting would come and join them, so that they too could have their share. The meeting now terminated, 
and the socialists were suffered to depart in peace. Some of them, however, lingered amongst the crowd after the main body had departed, and for a long time after the meeting was over, little groups remained on the field, excitedly discussing the speeches or the leaflets. The next Sunday evening, when the socialists came, they found the field of the crossroads in the possession of a furiously hostile mob, who refused to allow them to speak. And finally, well, they had to go away, without having held a meeting. They came again the next Sunday, and on this occasion they had a speaker with a very loud, literally a stentorian voice, and he succeeded in delivering an address, but only to those who were very close who were able to hear him. And as they were all socialists, well, it wasn't much of an effect upon those for whom it was intended. They came again the next Sunday, and nearly every other Sunday during the summer. Sometimes they were permitted to hold their meeting in comparative peace, and at other times there was a row. They made several converts, and many persons declared themselves in favour of some of the things which were advocated. But they were never able to form a branch of their society there, because, well, nearly all those who were convinced were afraid to publicly declare themselves, lest they should lose their employment or their customers. Music